Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Can't hear me yet? Is it my fault? Good morning. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. A mafia godfather finds out that his bookkeeper has cheated him out of about $10 million. Can you hear me? All right, we'll get through this. His bookkeeper is deaf. That's the reason he got the job. The guy figured if he can't hear anything, he won't be able to testify in court. So the godfather goes to confront the bookkeeper and he takes his attorney with him who knows sign language. And the godfather tells the lawyer, ask him where the 10 million bucks is that he embezzled from me. And so the attorney using sign language asks the bookkeeper where the money is. And he responds, I don't know anything about it. So the attorney tells the godfather, he says he doesn't know what you're talking about. So the godfather pulls out a pistol, puts it to the bookkeeper's temple and says, ask him again. And the attorney signs to the bookkeeper, he's going to kill you if you don't tell him. So the bookkeeper signs back, okay, okay, you win. The money's in a brown briefcase buried behind the shed in my cousin Enzo's backyard in Queens. Godfather asks the attorney, well, what did he say? The attorney said, he says you don't have the guts to pull the trigger. <laughs> That's a great illustration for a lack of communication or maybe miscommunication, but I want to use it this morning to remind you of the importance of perspective. The real problem is that those three individuals had different perspectives of that situation, and if they all had the real and right perspective, it certainly would have changed the outcome. And so I want to talk to you this morning about getting it into perspective. We find ourselves in a section of scripture dealing with division in the church. The people in Corinth were divided into little groups and they were shooting at each other. There was division throughout the church, and the very root cause of their problem, as we saw at the beginning of chapter 3, was carnality. They were fleshly, and because they were fleshly, they were jealous, and they were dividing into various groups. And this carnality manifests itself in two major areas. One was that they were exalting human wisdom. The other was that they were exalting human teachers. And both of those two issues led to divisions. They were dividing over opinions about various things and getting into groups about various ideas rather than submitting to the word of God. And they were gathering around certain teachers saying, I have Paul, I have Apollos, I have Cephas, and dividing into little groupies following certain teachers. And so Paul, in the first four chapters of this letter, attacks those two issues. In chapters 1 and 2, he deals primarily with human wisdom, 
showing that it has no place in the church. And then in chapters 3 and 4, he addresses the issue of human teachers showing that they are only servants of God and that God is the one who should be exalted. And then in our passage this morning, which is chapter 3, verses 18 to 23, he really gives us this whole thing in a nutshell. This is kind of like the pinnacle. It's kind of like the summary, if you like, of his argument in these first four chapters. Now, to remind you of where we're at in this chapter, Paul has been dealing with the problem in chapter 3 of exalting human teachers. And he shows us that exalting human teachers in verses 1 to 4 manifests carnality. Then he shows us that exalting human teachers in verses 5 to 9 shows that you don't understand the place of teachers because they are servants of God. And it also shows that you don't understand the place of God because you are God's field. He's the one who causes the growth and teachers are simply planting and watering the seed. And then he shows that exalting human teachers in verses 10 to 17 shows that you don't understand the place of rewards because God is going to give the rewards at the judgment seat. That's when he's going to determine people's works, whether it's gold, silver, and precious stone, or wood, hay, and stubble. And the point is, it's not your job to give out rewards to people today. And then he comes to the summary in verses 18 to 23, gathering together both of these ideas, the idea of exalting human wisdom and the idea of exalting human teachers. And he gives us a summary in the verses we're going to look at this morning. Now, summaries can be very valuable to kind of pull the loose ends together and figure out where you're at. I always loved textbooks in school that had summaries at the end of the chapter. Because if for one, some very good reason I couldn't read the chapter, I could always go and kind of get that substance of what it was about. And Paul seems to understand the importance of a summary because he's been talking a lot about divisions. He covers four chapters, and so here he kind of wants to put it all together for us so we can kind of uh, glean the basic ideas in this passage. And so I want us to look at this passage in terms of four points. Paul is telling us that in order to eliminate divisions in the church, we have to get certain things in proper perspective. And I've picked out four in this passage. Those four things is I have to have myself in proper perspective, others in proper perspective, things in proper perspective, and God in proper perspective. And when I do, divisions will be eliminated. First of all, I have to get myself in proper perspective. And it really boils down to this. A lot of division in the church will be eliminated if we are not so impressed with ourselves and our wisdom and our opinion. Look at verse 18. Great verse. Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. You know, it's easy to deceive yourself in the area of human wisdom. It's easy to think that you're wiser than you are. 
Intellectual pride comes easy. And it's always divisive. Do you know people that get their ego satisfaction from always taking the opposite opinion? Doesn't matter what the subject is. There are certain people that just want to take the opposite opinion just so that they can argue with you. Do you know people like that? Sure you do. You are that person lots of times. It's just like, well, you know, whatever it is, I'll just take the opposite side and no matter what the argument is, however absurd my position is, I'll never say I'm wrong. That's human wisdom. And Paul says if you're going to eliminate divisions, you're going to have to stop deceiving yourself in the area of human wisdom. The church doesn't need your opinion. God doesn't need your opinion. God doesn't need your human wisdom. Now, let me be careful here. Because when I'm talking about human wisdom, or when Paul's talking about human wisdom, he's not talking about human wisdom as it relates to science, or math, or how to do surgery. That's not what he's talking about. I, uh, several years ago, I went down to Florida in the spring and got out in the sun. I was white as a sheet and I got out in the sun too long and, and I got sun poisoning. And a, a rash broke out on my chest and it itched and it was awful. And since then I've, I've not been out in the sun. I, I wear a t-shirt in the sun. Well, we went to Jamaica last week and, and I saw a doctor and he gave me uh, steroids. Can you tell? He gave me steroids for 10 days to take steroids, and he said, this should allow you to go out in the sun and have no problem. And I had no problem. I've got the tan, a tan for the first time in about six years. Wonderful wisdom that he displayed to allow me to get a tan. So he's not talking about that kind of human wisdom. He's not talking about uh, common sense. I was reading just the other day about uh, Will Rogers one of the great guys who kind of gave you great common sense. Here's some of his quotes. Never slap a man who's chewing tobacco. Never kick a cow chip on a hot day. Always drink upstream from the herd. If you find yourself in a hole, stop digging. And then my favorite, he says, there are two theories to arguing with a woman. Neither one works. When he talks about human wisdom, he's not talking about common sense. He's not talking about intelligence and understanding in fields where we gain great benefit. What he's talking about is when we take our human wisdom over into the area of the things of God. The things of God being salvation, the knowledge of God, the principles of the spiritual life. You see, human wisdom is absolutely worthless in relation to the things of God. And on top of that, it's divisive. When people begin to take their opinion and set it up as the authority in the spiritual life, you're going to have all kinds of division over whose opinion is right. And you know what the solution is? The solution is to go to the Word of God as the authority 
And when the, author- when the word of God is taught and when we are submissive to the word of God, then we have one authority and one source of wisdom around which to unite. So what is the proper perspective toward myself? Well, you see it in verse 18. He says, you are to consider yourself foolish. That's the Greek word from which we get the English word moron. What is to be my perspective on myself? I'm a moron. Now here's the paradox. If I consider myself to be wise, I'm only deceiving myself. If I consider myself to be a moron, I don't know anything, and I submit myself to the wisdom of God, the truth of God, the revelation of God, he tells me that I become wise. There's the paradox. You can't become wise until you first admit that you're a fool. Have you done that? You know, when I was younger, people always, not not always, I shouldn't say that, people often came up to me and said, you know, you're so young and it's amazing that you know the word of God so well. Now that I've gotten older, nobody tells me that anymore. And it's always amazing to me. We, I had, recently I had, had lunch with a doctor. And, and we've got many doctors in this church. We've got many professors. In we've got people that are far more educated than I am. And it always amazes me that I'm up here talking to people that are far more educated, far more intelligent than I am. And people say, well, why is that? Well, that's because I realized a long time ago that I'm a moron. And the only place that I'm going to find God's wisdom is in this word. And so I have dedicated myself to the word of God. And that's where wisdom comes from. You say, well, Dan, why would you waste your time talking to doctors? And why would you have lunch with a doctor? Because doctors think they know it all. Well, because those doctors have realized that they're morons when it comes to the things of God and submitted yourselves to his truth as well. And that's exactly what Paul is saying in verse 18. We have to become humble enough to submit ourselves to the authority of the revelation of God. You know, it's difficult to teach somebody who thinks they already know it all. Quintilian said of some of his students, they would doubtless have become excellent scholars if they had not been so fully persuaded of their own scholarship. You've probably heard the old proverb, he who knows not and knows not that he knows not is a fool. Avoid him. He who knows not and knows that he knows not is wise. Teach him. Listen, when you realize that you don't know anything, you don't know anything that matters in terms of salvation, the knowledge of God, the principles of the spiritual life, and you submit yourself to the word of God, you become wise. And so the paradox is that the only way to be wise is to realize that you're a fool, to confess your ignorance and turn to the revelation of God. And until you come to that point in your life, 
you're deceiving yourself. And the truth is, you're probably not deceiving very many other people. You're just deceiving yourself. So what's the proper perspective toward ourself? I need to see myself as a fool, as a moron. Now really, this shouldn't surprise us too much because it's not out of character with the rest of Scripture. In fact, it's really a universal law in Scripture that we must be empty in order to be filled. In order to receive God's righteousness, I have to renounce my own righteousness and admit that I'm a sinner. In order to be made strong, I have to renounce my own strength. In order to be exalted, I have to stop trying to exalt myself and humble myself. And here he says, in order to be truly wise, you have to admit that you're a fool. Now, God wouldn't make you renounce something unless that something wasn't what it really assumes to be. But see, our righteousness really isn't righteousness. And our strength really isn't strength. And our exaltation really is not exaltation. And our wisdom really isn't wisdom. So you see, God is saying those things are worthless anyway. And you need to let go of those things in order to take hold of God's true blessings for you. And that's his point in verse 19. Look at verse 19. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. See what he's saying? This world's wisdom is worthless. It's foolishness to God. It never got anybody saved. It never got anybody to God. It never opened up the spiritual life to anybody. It's worthless. So we need to be letting go of it and taking hold of God's wisdom. And then I love what Paul does here because he quotes two Old Testament scriptures. And this is right at home for me because I, I, it, it bugs me when I hear a preacher or I read a book and they give you all kinds of spiritual principles and they never use any scripture to back it up. Whenever I give a principle, I try to give a verse. In fact, I try to be in a verse so that I'm showing you where that comes from. And I love it here because Paul is writing scripture. He doesn't have to quote scripture when you're writing scripture, but he's writing scripture and he still quotes scripture to support what he's saying. So he goes back to two Old Testament scriptures and gives us those scriptures to confirm what he's saying here. And the first one is in verse uh, 20, or verse 19 at the end. He says, for it is written, he is the one who catches the wise in his craftiness. And that's a quote from Job 5.13. And what he's saying is the wise are really trapped by their own wisdom. Their own wisdom, rather than helping them get to God, actually becomes a trap that keeps them from God. And we don't have to go over that because Paul illustrated it in chapter 1. Where he showed that the wisdom of man is, is so foolish that it, he actually looks at the cross of Jesus Christ, which is God's wisdom, and he calls the cross foolishness. His wisdom becomes a trap that keeps him from the wisdom of God. And then he gives us a second quote in verse 20. He says, and again, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise that they are useless. Now, let me go back to that passage, Psalm 94. If you want to turn there, you can. It's a great passage, Psalm 94, because it's interesting what he says in this chapter right before that verse. Because in Psalm 94, verse 7, he says, here's what the world in its wisdom is saying. 
Psalm 94, 7. They have said, the Lord does not see, nor does the God of Jacob pay heed. Here's the wisdom of the world speaking, and what are they saying? God can't hear, and God can't see us. And here's the response of the psalm writer in verse 8. Pay heed, you senseless among the people, and when will you understand, stupid ones? Your mom told you not to use that word, but scripture does here. And then he says this, he who planted the ear, does he not hear? The, The one who made your ear, you think he doesn't hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who chastens the nation, will he not rebuke? Even he who teaches man knowledge, the Lord knows the thoughts of man, that they are a mere breath. The very best thought of man is just like a breath. It comes out and it's gone. And as Paul quotes that verse, he just says it's useless in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Take all the thoughts of the wise and they add up to zero. They are empty, impotent, and useless. They have lots of answers. You ask people about their opinion on eternal things, on the things of God, on where we came from, why we're here, where we're going. They'll throw out opinions. But they are useless. They are worthless. So their wisdom is empty and their wisdom is a trap. So what's the proper perspective toward yourself? You're a moron. I love to say that. (laughs) Second point, proper perspective toward others. Verse 21. So then, let no one boast in men. That so then is really a therefore. And so he's looking back. He's saying since human wisdom is foolish and empty, why would you want to boast in a man who's proclaiming that human wisdom? And since real wisdom only comes from God, why would you want to boast in a man? Because he didn't really, he's not really the source of that wisdom. We were in uh, Jamaica, and, and, and when you're in Jamaica, you see Bob Marley everywhere. I mean, he's on the t-shirts, he's on the billboards, they, they're, they're exalting this guy. When I got home, I, I noticed in uh, Forbes magazine, he's ranked the highest, or the 13th highest Uh, had the 13th highest income last year among dead people. He made $7 million last year. So being over there, you you get kind of just tired of this, exalting an individual. But we're all guilty of that. We're all guilty of locking into certain people and, and exalting certain people above where we should exalt them. And that's what he's talking about here. When you look at others, don't boast in people. You see, if, if that person is teaching you human wisdom, then that's worthless, so there's no reason to exalt that person. And if that person is teaching you God's wisdom, then God is the source of that, so there's no reason to exalt that person. So there's never a reason to boast in a man. What we should do is, according to the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, If you're going to boast, boast in the Lord. So what's the proper perspective toward others? Don't boast in men. And then notice what he adds to that at the end of verse 21. He says, for all things belong to you. Verse 22, whether Paul or Apollos 
or Cephas. That's interesting. Did you get that? Paul says, listen, you don't belong to teachers. Teachers belong to you. So why would you want to put yourself under one teacher when you own them all? They're yours. Now, this is not a verse supporting church hopping. This is all taking place in the same church for them. But I think what he's saying to us is, don't don't be a Christian groupie who says, this is my guy. You know, Chuck Swindoll is the only guy I ever listened to, or John MacArthur is the only guy I ever listened to. And whatever he says goes, and it doesn't matter what anybody else, that's wrong. Now, he's not saying listen to every teacher because there are false teachers out there. But when you've got a faithful, solid teacher, you need to realize that they're all yours. So don't limit yourself to one when you have the benefit of all. If you go in my office, I've got all the walls covered with commentaries, which are really teachers in book form that I read and I glean from. And that's what he's saying here. They're all yours. Which introduces the third point, which is the proper perspective toward things. You know, one of the big things that divides is things. I want what you have, or I don't want you to have what I have. And so we, we often divide over possessions and things. And notice what he says here again at the end of verse 21. For all things belong to you. Did you get that? What's our relationship to things? They're all ours. You say, well, Dan, he doesn't mean all here, does he? Well, if he meant some, don't you think he would say some? He doesn't say some. He says all. Romans 8.17 says we are joint heirs with Christ, which means whatever Christ gets, we get. And Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 2 says Christ is the heir of all things. So we inherit everything. In Jesus' prayer in John 17, he said, The glory which you have given me, I have given to them. All things are ours. And just in case you don't get that, he's going to elaborate on it in verse 22. He says, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, all teachers are ours. And then he says, or the world. Now, when he talks about the world here, I don't think he's talking about the corrupt world system because we don't want that. He's talking about the physical world is ours. I just came back from Jamaica. I'm, I'm still in my mind sitting on the beach with beautiful blue water and palm trees. Beautiful setting. The the taxi driver that took us back to the airport said 20 years ago you could have bought some of this land, but you couldn't afford it now. Then I get home and read this scripture and I go, it's mine anyway. (laughs) It's all mine. Those guys are just using it right now. We're going to inherit it all. And then he says, or life. We have life. Eternal life, God living in you. Nobody lives like you do if you're a Christian. You are really living. Life is yours. In fact, the very life you're going to have forever 
is already yours. If you've ever been to Jamaica, they're trying to sell you things all the time. So I, I like to walk the beach. So I would walk the beach, and they're always trying to, hey, man, hey, mom, they would say, and they would sell me, try to sell me something. They try to sell uh, marijuana, or they try to sell whatever else they're selling, and uh, get you to buy that kind of thing. And uh, finally, when I walked along the beach so long, they started leaving me alone, because they realized I was, I just, no thanks, no thanks, no thanks, no. Last day I was there, I was walking down the beach, and this guy's sitting under his tree. He doesn't even get up. He just says, uh, I think it was a question, but it didn't sound like a question. He just said, you found what you're looking for. And I said, what? He said, you found what you're looking for. And I said, yeah, I've found what I'm looking for. I didn't come to Jamaica to find something new. I, I've got what I'm looking for, and that is life in Jesus Christ. And then he says, or death. Death is mine. You say, well, who wants death? Well, for the Christian, what is death? Death is the door that takes me to Jesus. So even as a believer, because Jesus has taken the sting out of death, death is no longer something I have to fear. It's something that I can look forward to. And so he says, we own death. And then he says, or things present. Everything there is, is ours. If it exists, it's ours. And then he says, or things to come. What are those? Well, I know some of them. I don't know all of them. But whatever's to come is also ours. And then he repeats, all things belong to you. And what's Paul's point? Everything is yours. So it doesn't make any sense for you to say, I'm in this little group, or I only listen to this teacher and I don't like that teacher. You see, you don't need to divide yourself up because when you do, you're making yourself poor. And Paul says, you're rich, everything is yours. If in the body of Christ, everything belongs to everybody, Where's the division? And then the fourth point is a proper perspective toward God. Look at verse 23. And you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. This is good. You have everything, and Christ has you, and God has Christ. That's a pretty good place to be. I've got everything in my arms, and I'm in Christ's arms, and he's in God's arms. That's pretty good. You see any division there? You see any separation there? Listen, your greatest blessing is not what you possess. It's who possesses you. What a great verse. We have everything. We start kind of getting selfish when we're thinking that way. But the real issue is that who's got me? Jesus has me. I am his possession. And God holds him. Great security. So divisions disappear when you get a proper perspective. First of all, of yourself. You're a moron. So let go of your own human wisdom and take hold of the truth of God and you will be wise. Secondly, toward others. Don't boast in men. The best man is just communicating God's wisdom to you. 
Thirdly, proper perspective toward things. They all belong to us. And fourthly, a proper perspective toward God. We all belong to him. And so united together, we should give him all the glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word today. Thank you for this great little passage that we kind of read over sometimes and don't catch it. The magnitude of what you're saying here. Father, I pray that we would truly come to the point of humility where we realize that our thoughts and our education and our knowledge and our, our insights and our opinions are just that. And Lord, I pray that we would truly realize that standing before you, we are foolish. And that we would truly seek your word for wisdom, to rely on you, to be submissive to your truth and your revelation alone, to find answers to the questions that we need answers to. And Father, I pray that you would help us not to exalt people. It's so fleshly to do that. And yet we're so prone and so naturally wanting to exalt people, uh, wanting to put uh, posters on our walls of even Christian leaders because we want to be exalting them. And Father, I just pray that we would keep that in balance and keep the unity in that area. And Father, when it comes to things, that we would not be people who are captivated and captured by materialism, realizing that you've already said it's all ours. We're going to inherit it all. Why would we need to grab at it now? And then, Father, I pray that most of all, we would keep a proper perspective toward you to realize that we are in your arms, that you possess us and all of us. And Lord, I pray that as a result of getting our perspective right, that we would get our unity right and embrace each other because all of this comes to us because of your grace, as Clay sang earlier, and it's amazing. And we thank you and praise you because of that in Jesus' name. Amen.